0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Now to our text. John chapter 4. This is an opportunity for us to begin a series that we are highlighting three W's that are crucially important for a disciple of Jesus Christ. When my wife and I began to prayerfully consider planting this church... We realized the challenge that is different with planting a church than being a church attender. We had spent 30 some years of our lives being church attenders. And when you are a church attender, you have the luxury of evaluating what the church leadership does, saying whether you agree with it or not. But when you are a church planter, you are the ones deciding what the church would look like. And so we knew that we wanted to plant a church that was rooted in Scripture. And as we looked at Scripture, there was a rather simple instruction from Jesus to his church, which is to make disciples, I mean, isn't that awesome that the God of the universe, that the king of the church gave us rather simple instructions, make disciples, but we realized very quickly how to do that and what that actually looks like gets a little complicated. So thankfully, we planted this church out of a church planting network. They gave us resources, and one of the resources was this amazing concept that a healthy disciple worships Christ, walks with him, and works for him. In fact, John MacArthur said as he evaluated Hebrews chapter 11, this is the divine process of the Christian life. A Christ follower worships him, walks with him, and works for him. And so over the next three weeks, we're going to be each Sunday highlighting one of these three W's. Highlighting it so that we can better understand what the Bible says, but then highlighting it to give you and me opportunities to grow in these three areas, and as healthy disciples of Christ. So the first one we focus on is worship. I would submit to you a definition of worship, that worship is the expression of our attitudes or actions that reveals what we value. Can I say that again? Worship is the expression of our attitudes or our actions that reveals what we value. So let's make sure that we understand this Generally, before we get spiritual with it, the expressions of your attitudes and your actions of what you value is an expression of worship. That can be for pizza. It can also be for God. So I want us to understand this general principle because that general principle, I think, is what Jesus is going to use in this passage to highlight what Christian worship looks like and the priority it should have in our lives. Now, you might look at the cards that were given to you as you walked in that said that today on our worship emphasis, we are going to focus on four areas, student ministry, kids ministry, creative, and worship. And you might look at those four and say, well, I only see one that is clearly worship, but I hope that by the end, when I highlight these four again, you will see how each one of these is a tremendous opportunity for you and for your children to engage and grow in worship. Let me read our passage, and then I'll unpack it. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This passage has a big idea, as you can see in your notes, The worship is the attitude and expression of what we value most. Let's look, first of all, number one, that true worship is centered during challenges. True worship is centered during challenges. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen, and that is that what we truly value is best revealed when we are challenged. It's one thing to have no challenges in our life and to do what we ultimately value. But when our life is challenged, it reveals what we truly value. Jesus was challenged. In fact, verse 1 tells us that the Pharisees had heard something about Jesus. Now, remember, as we studied the gospel of Mark, that the Pharisees were the religious elite in Israel. The Pharisees were authoritative spiritually in Israel. So if the Pharisees begin to hear something that they're not happy about, you can trust that trouble is coming. What did they hear? Well, verse 1 tells us, That they heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, understand that John was the most popular teacher of this day. In fact, the marked passage in chapter 1 says that all of Judea, the entire region was coming out to listen to John the Baptist. He is an extremely popular figure. And yet the Pharisees are hearing that Jesus is actually growing in popularity beyond John. So this is a challenge to Jesus, so much so that he leaves the region of Judea, which Jerusalem is found in, and heads north to Galilee. So the challenge, first of all, is in the potential oppression of people in great power. But there's also physical challenge. Look at verse 6. It says that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or in our timing, noon. Which if you've ever been to Israel at high noon, or If you've not, maybe you've been to somewhere like Los Angeles, usually at high noon or in Phoenix, the sun beats down on you. And so Jesus is experiencing challenges, both from oppression as well as physical exhaustion, and yet he is centered in all of this. You know, this last week I actually took a step of challenge. Which, by the way, beloved, listen, this is a gift. If you have a spouse who repeats requests of you, you probably should stop and think about doing it. And so my dear wife, in very creative and funny ways, let me know that my miscellaneous drawer was getting out of control. Now, everybody has a miscellaneous drawer, right? It's that drawer where you have things that are valuable to you, but you can't leave them out, so you put them in. Miscellaneous drawer. Come on, don't leave me up here by myself. And so my my miscellaneous drawer was truly getting out of control, but, you know, in my mind, it is what it is. But my wife just said, basically, here's my translation, it would be a blessing if you cleared out your miscellaneous drawer. So, So the process for all that was in my miscellaneous drawer was quite a challenge because some of it was going to be sent to trash heaven. And so two items in particular in miscellaneous drawer drew my attention. They were two plastic trash bags. One of them was empty and one of them was filled with salt rocks from the literal dead sea. So when I went to Israel, I stood in the Dead Sea. It's kind of this muddy, kind of thick uh, mud that's at the bottom, and you kind of move your toes, and there's hard things in there, and you pick them up, and they're very beautiful, salty rocks. So I put all of those that I had found there in a trash plastic bag. That also was in my drawer. Which one do you think I kept? I actually kept the empty one. And the reason for that is because of a note that I found attached to that empty bag. And that note read this, this bag is filled with my kisses so that you can have them when you are lonely, love, Macy. So for me, as the challenge to my miscellaneous drawer was presented, I had to weigh of those two trash plastic bags because my wife had never acknowledge that I cleaned it out if there were two plastic trash bags in there. I knew one had to stay, and the one that stayed was the one that I most valued. I value my family above any experience that I have had in my life, including tra- traveling to Israel. And that point, as imperfect as it was made, is intended to express what Jesus demonstrates in these first few verses. Jesus is facing challenges, but he's centered, and he's centered by looking at verse 4. Would you look at it with me? He had to pass through Samaria. Would you underline that phrase? It is intentional, it is purposeful, and it is rich. The word had means something which should be done despite excuses not to were valid excuses for Jesus not to pass through Samaria. Jews hated Samaritans. In fact, we see that down in verse 9. John says Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And why is that? Well, because when Assyria deported the Jews from that region, they took the Jews out of that region, but then they replaced them with people from their empire. And so those people came to that region, in Israel, bringing their own gods, bringing their own culture and their own tradition. And what they did is they combined them with Jewish traditions, Jewish law, and Jewish culture. So the the worship in Samaria was actually a hybrid of paganism and following after Yahweh, Israel's God. The Jews detested that. And so by this time, the Jews detested the Samaritans and the Samaritans detested the Jews. So the Jews, in fact, would actually take the long route to get to Galilee. They would go on the other side of the Jordan. They would take a longer path just so they could avoid anything having to do with the Samaritans. But this says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And he did so at a a timing that would get him to a well, but right in the middle of, Of the hot moment of the day. Jesus was centered during challenges. Why? Write down these two verses. John 2.16 and John 12.28. What drove Jesus is his father's character and the will of his father. John 2.16 is Jesus in the, the courtyard of the temple. And Jesus is in the temple, and he's seeing the business that is taking place. Which, by the way, it it didn't upset Jesus that business was taking place. What upset Jesus is that unrighteous business was taking place. That Babylon system business was taking place. That people were only thinking of their own pocketbooks. I guess they didn't have pocketbooks back there. Whatever they carried. Jesus was upset about that. Why? Because it dishonored his father. John 12, 28, Jesus talks about the mission and the motivation for everything that he did. It was for the glory of his Father. And beloved, that is where we begin when we think of worship as it pertains to Christian worship. Are you centered, are you focused on all things bringing glory to God? Are you centered, are you focused on the value that you place on God's character and his glory above everything else? And that will be revealed when you are challenged. That will be revealed when your preferences and your comfort are threatened. Beloved, Jesus provides the first example of true Christian worship. He was centered during challenges. Number two, true Christian worship is creative directing convergence. Creative directing convergence. There are three strikes against Jesus striking up a conversation here. You knew I'd get a baseball reference. Verse 7 tells us that she was a woman. In ancient culture in the first century, a Jew having a conversation with a woman in public in the middle of the day was unheard of. The second strike is found in verse 7 that she is from Samaria. Again, this is a Jew having the opportunity to speak to a woman who is a Samaritan, the despised Samaritan. The third strike, actually we have to get a little creative to see it, is at the end of verse 6 that it was about the sixth hour. People don't come to the well at high noon. The woman comes to the well for a reason. We'll see that in just a moment. It's her life context. She does not want to be in a place where a lot of other people will be because she's ashamed. So you really have three strikes that should keep Jesus from entering into conversation, but he doesn't. And in fact, his conversation is a convergence. What is a convergence? It is lines that meet at a central point. Let me illustrate that by going to baseball. (laughs) You, you listen, if you guys are here at Ascend for any amount of time, you know, and I need to grow in this, I acknowledge it, and I'm, I'm working on it, but not today. <laughs> but, but my illustrations typically converge on three topics, don't they? Family, movies, and baseball. And man, this last week, if my family would have sat down on Thursday night and watched the Field of Dreams game together as a family, that would have been like happy dance time. Why do I do that, though? Why why do my illustrations converge on those topics? Because, listen, in my life, other than Christ, those are my three favorite, most valued topics. That's what I love. That's what I own. That's what I can relate to. That's what I go to when I have the opportunity to decide, So that's the circumstance that Jesus is modeling here that as he comes to this undesirable context and conversation, it begins with a line of drink, doesn't it? The woman is there at the well because she's thirsty, because she needs water to survive. Jesus is by a well in the middle of the day because he's wearied. And as Ben said in Hebrews chapter 4, this is a Jesus who can relate to us because he is human. He has experienced all of the contexts and the topics that we experience. He has experienced them, including weariness. And so this is the topic at hand for the conversation. But Jesus is creative in his convergence, isn't he? how do i demonstrate that look at verse 10 jesus answered her if you knew the gift of god he moves from the horizontal topic to the vertical one and then he creatively adjusts the conversation to talk about living water doesn't he which by the way living water in an ancient context was very important stagnant water, we've all experienced, haven't we? Whether it's the uh, water around my French drain at home and the smell that comes out when it's very, very hot. Whether it's a pond that you went to at grandma and grandpa's house growing up and it's stagnant and the algae and it's just the In the ancient world, if you wanted to have pure water, it had to be living water. It had to be flowing water. And so living water is associated with life. And so this was an opportunity for Jesus to get creative. And so he starts talking to the woman, beginning with the topic that was at hand, pointing her vertically, and then getting her to what he wants to talk about, and that is the gospel that he is bringing to humanity. Beloved, let me ask you this question. When it comes to the conversations that you are having in your life, how often do they converge on Christ? And I'm not talking about religion I'm not talking about just church. There are plenty of people in this community and plenty of buildings and organizations that are called church, but they aren't defined biblically. There's a lot of people in our community and a lot of organizations who would say it's all about Jesus, but when you start looking at the definition of the Jesus they say they are all about, it is not the Jesus of Scripture. In fact, the elders have been going through a book called Finding the Right Hills to Die On, Because there are usually two extremes when it comes to doctrine, isn't there? There's usually those who are like doctrine soldiers, where every doctrine, every doctrine in Scripture is a hill to die on. And then there are other people who take the other extreme where they say, no, 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 it's not about doctrine, it's about Jesus. And in the chapter that we just studied, which is chapter 2, making sure that we don't minimize doctrine, it importantly reminds us that we must define doctrine in Scripture, and we must land. Beloved, listen. As a Christian, you should land on doctrine. Don't leave it to the church leadership. Don't leave it to scholars. If the Bible talks about it, you should land on what your conviction is and your conclusion is of what that means. And make sure you're defining it with Scripture. And what we even saw in the chapter that we studied on Saturday morning, which, by the way, the prayer requests that you give to us and that connection card, we pray over. We prayed over every one of those on Saturday morning, including others that you haven't submitted that we just know about. But as we studied that, we talked about how important it is to make sure we're defining Jesus, not in ways we want him to be defined, but in the way he actually is defined in Scripture. Scripture. Jesus cared very deeply that you follow God's design when you love somebody else. The Jesus of Scripture was not a Jesus who would agree with what some churches are saying, that you just love who you want to love. Jesus would say, "Uh, no, I tell you who it's okay to love and who you should not be loving, and if you struggle with that, I give you the tools that you need in the gospel to get victory. That's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus isn't just about love and mercy and compassion. Yes, that, but he's also about truth. He's also about exposing our sin. We'll see that in a few verses. Make sure that we're defining Jesus as Scripture defines him and make sure that we're pointing people to the hope that's found not in legislation, not in medicine, not in social recalibration, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, but you can salt the oats. That actually was a quote by Glenn Adams, the founding pastor of the church that handed the baton off to us. We celebrated his life last week. You can't force a horse to drink the water, but you can salt the oats. And I learned in between services that you salt the oats so they make him thirsty. So, beloved, get creative and your convergence in conversations. Look for opportunities to have conversations with people that point people to Christ. And you don't just start with the Roman law. You don't just start pointing with, have you ever looked at a woman you're a, you know, You're a luster. That's not where you start. You start creatively. You salt those oats. But beloved, the goal is to converge at Christ. See, listen, you will talk about the things that you value. So my question is, if you say that you value Christ, how much is he a part of your conversations? Number three, candid. True worship is candid in defining character. It's candid in defining character. You know, oftentimes when our failures are exposed, we quickly move to control the narrative, don't we? When my wife exposes my miscellaneous drawer... I want to quickly control the narrative. Okay, sweetie, but you know the rocks are not out on the top. You know that you don't have to see what's in the miscellaneous drawer unless you open it. And immediately I'm trying to control the narrative, but beloved, it's it's not just those humorous circumstances. It also comes to our own sin, doesn't it? Why did I sin? Well, it's because you were offended. It's because I had a rough childhood. It's because I have this diagnosis. No, listen, we are responsible for our responses to life. Jesus is exposing that through the topic of worship. You even see the woman here use worship to control the narrative. Jesus has just exposed her, saying, go, call your husband. She says, wait a minute, I don't have a husband. He says, legally, you're right, but you've had five, and the man that you're living with now isn't legally your husband. He's exposing her character. So where does she go to control the narrative? Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive we're talking spiritual things here. You must be a prophet. That's my translation. But she immediately moves to control the narrative by getting into the form of worship. Look at what it says in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. See, the Samaritans did not believe that anything outside of the first five books of the Bible were scripture. They didn't get to enjoy the Psalms, they didn't get to enjoy the prophets or any of the historical books. And so they made a hybrid of the worship of Yahweh. And so they had decided that that mountain where the well was, where you could see the mountain from the well, that's where you should worship. But the Jews said, no, 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 it's Jerusalem because of what they saw in the prophets. And she wants to find Jesus' answer on this technicality. Let me get practical and then we'll dive back into the text. I'll ask the team to put a quote up on the screen. Christian worship is often one of the greatest tools we use to control the narrative of our spiritual health. Christian worship is often one of the greatest tools that we use to control the narrative of our spiritual health. And some of you are doing that right now. Some of you are feeling some guilt because of the way you've lived the last six days or maybe even last night. And so you're here at church. Some of you are here at church so that on Monday you can share with your coworkers or your classmates or your teachers or your neighbors that, hey, what would you do yesterday? Well, I went to church. And in doing so, you're hoping to control the narrative, the spiritual narrative in your life to look one way when you know in your heart you're not that way. But there's also another side, a positive side of Christian worship. Another quote we'll put up on the screen. Christian worship is also one of the great tools that reveals what we value most. I keep talking about Christian worship, don't I? Let me, let me define Christian worship. Christian worship are the disciplines prescribed in Scripture that are expected of God's people. Christian worship, remember we talked generally, worship are the expressions of the attitudes and actions that reveal what you value. Food choices, uh, climate in your car or in your house, uh, decisions that you make on your calendar, that's all worship, and that is a valid general expression of a definition of worship. But Christian worship are the spiritual disciplines prescribed in Scripture expected of God's people. So we go back to the Old Testament, and that helps us better understand the law, doesn't it? The law of the Old Testament wasn't ultimately about a a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It wasn't ultimately about the animals that were sacrificed. It wasn't ultimately about the prayers that were read. It wasn't ultimately about the festivals that were celebrated or even the location of these expressions. That wasn't the point. Those were important, and we'll get to that in just a moment but but they they were intended to be opportunities to show how God's people were different than the world and were intended to reveal what they valued most. What are the expressions of this in the New Testament? You can write these down. Hopefully you're familiar with them. Studying God's word. That is a spiritual discipline prescribed by God expected of his followers. Prayer. Corporate worship. Worship. Which, by the way, can I just highlight something that I, I know it might appear that I struggle with this, but are you getting to corporate worship on time? See, how many things in our life that we value highly, like keeping your job, gets you to a place where you are there on time? And we've developed a pattern here, beloved, Where we get in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes after the service starts, and maybe that's just a habit, and maybe you've been exposed right now, and you realize, okay, I need to work on this. But what does that tell you, and what does that tell, more importantly, your God, about how much value you place on corporate worship? See, there's also benefit to that, that the scripture that was read by the host, the scriptures that were read by Ben that went to Hebrews, went back to the Old Testament, went back to Hebrews, went to 1 Corinthians, these are intended to help us because we need help with corporate worship, don't we? We don't just usually flip a switch and, oh, I'm there, I'm ready. We we need help. We need to get our minds from preseason football games to vertical in the throne room of the God that we're worshiping. And so worship is designed to assist. Worship is designed to facilitate. But worship is also an opportunity for you to demonstrate to God how much value and priority you place on Him. And I get I had people come up to me in between services. Well, you know, my ears hurt with the music. And I have little kids. I, I get it. I'm just saying, evaluate your life. And are there other areas that you're making a priority that the expression of arriving late here Seems to invalidate the value that you place on God. Happy to help you think through that if you'd like. What is the point that Jesus is exposing? Is that worship is more about character than it is behavior. That's what he's exposing to this woman. He walks through her objection, and he says, legally, you're right, legally, verse 18, it's true. But biblically, it's false. You have five husbands, and the man that you're with, which implies living with in a sexual relationship, is not legally your husband. He's exposing her. He's exposing her true character, and the woman does what so many people do, and they go to worship to control the narrative because she's focused on the form of worship, not the function Beloved, true Christian worship is intended to candidly candidly define our character, which brings us to number four. True worship is clarity delineating crux. And I got to tell you, these are lame outline points. I tried to get cute, fail. I tried to do C, D, C, which (laughs) that's interesting, isn't it? See, I wasn't even trying to do that, but it's Uh, let me just explain to you what I was trying to communicate, okay? So the woman thinks that the crux is the details of worship. So she's going through the form of worship, the details of worship, which let me translate that to what we live in with the 21st century. And that would be, she would be focusing on how many services a month you attend or what your arrival time is or how many days you read the Bible or how many numbers of times during the day do you pray and and the amount of tithe that you give and the amount of ministry teams that you're signed up for. That's what she would have been focusing on. She would have been asking, Jesus, how much is enough? And it's not that those details aren't important. If details were not important to the God of the universe, then why do we have four books that begin the Bible that actually are full of worshipful details? The details are important, but beloved, listen to this. They're not the crux. They're not the epicenter. They're not the motivation. They're not the purpose. See, Jesus in that day, recognize that the people were so focused on the details that they had forgotten the function. You know, I have an opportunity to grow in this. Sally and I have been married for 23 years this November. And man, there are some things that I think I do well, but there are a lot of things that I don't do well. And one of them is something that my wife will bring up to me from time to time, and she will say, you know, I know that you love me. But oftentimes the way that you respond to me does not reveal that I'm treasured by you, that I'm valued by you. And so immediately I'm, I'm summonsing Jackie Childs. If you're not a Seinfeld fan, you can look that up. My inner lawyer, let's say that. And I summons my inner lawyer. My inner lawyer is like, okay, you just washed the dishes for your wife. Bring that up. You just cleaned out your miscellaneous drawer. Bring that up. And I'm trying to defend the fact that look at all that I've done. But what she's reminding me is that it also is communicated, and often more so, in the tone of my response. On the way that I pursue her. And I'm just telling you, I suck at that. Now, one of two things could happen. I could just be, hey, honey, if you haven't figured it out in 22 years, this is who I am. And a lot of guys do that. And sadly, there have been times in my life where I've used that defense. Shame on me. But, beloved, the gospel changes us. And I don't care how you're wired. I don't care your personality. I don't care how it wasn't modeled to you when you were growing up. Whatever the excuse is, the gospel moves us beyond that to get to a place where we are following god 's design god's design for me and my wife is that I treasure her not just in the activities that I participate in but in the way that I participate in them So babe, I apologize I'm a work in progress i've asked her this last week I'm like, babe, am I growing in this and she's like yeah. so i'm wrong no defense that's the point that Jesus is drawing out is that you may be doing these details, but I want to drill down to the crux. What is the crux? Well, it begins in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's not, okay, let me, let me say this, let me preface this. By saying what I'm about to say, I'm, I'm about to say it with as much humility as I can possibly do because there are godly people who disagree with what I'm about to say. But as I've studied Genesis to Revelation and continue to do that, I believe that what I'm about to tell you is the point of Scripture when it comes to Israel. People still believe that there is a future that is exclusive to ethnic Israel, and I, I respect that. I used to believe that. But I think what Jesus is doing here in a very creative way is he's actually revealing to the Samaritan woman that it isn't ultimately about ethnicity. It isn't ultimately about tradition. It isn't even ultimately about a law. It's ultimately about Christ. And what he's saying here is that salvation comes through the Jews. What does that mean? Well, I wish we had more time, but it actually goes back to Genesis 12. You can write this down. You can look at it later. In Genesis 11, you have the, the, the people on the earth after the flood, and they are disobeying the command of God. God commanded Noah and his family to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I, I mentioned this last week. And I think the ultimate sin of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was not that they were building a high tower, it was that they were disobeying God's command in Genesis 9. We don't want to be scattered. We don't want to fill the earth, so we are going to stay right here and build a city that will make a name for ourselves. They're going against God's design. And so God's solution is actually revealed in Deuteronomy thirty-two, eight. In Deuteronomy 32.8, it says that the, the nations were given as an inheritance, the sons of God. And I think what that means, as I've studied scripture, is that God decided at Genesis 11 to scatter people. And they were no longer known just generically as humans on this globe with the God of the universe as their inheritance. They now were known by their nations, by their languages, by their cultures. And their inheritance were the fallen sons of God from Satan's rebellion in Genesis 6. So what God did in Genesis 12 is say, I'm gonna pick one of these nations and I'm gonna set my affection on them and through them will come the salvation to all nations. Now, what was that salvation? That salvation did not come through a code. It did not come through an ethnicity per se. It came through an individual who was born through that people group. That's what Paul says in Galatians. It's not about the offsprings, it's about the offspring singular, who is Christ. And so, beloved, let me just give you a a sentence that will at least allow you to start thinking about it. And that is, I think what Jesus is exposing here, as Mark has throughout our study, and that is that ethnic Israel is a placeholder. Ethnic Israel is a placeholder. And as a placeholder, it plays an important role. You don't know where the book goes unless you have a placeholder. You don't know where the story is stopped until you go to the placeholder. And I think ethnic Israel, as you look at Genesis to Revelation, is revealed to be a very, very, very important placeholder for the king. And so I think what Jesus is saying here is, listen, it's not about ethnicity. It isn't even about details of worship. It is ultimately about the king who is now here. That's what he says here in the text. And so he says salvation comes through the Jews, through Yahweh setting his affection on a nation, through the commands that reveal God's character in the Old Testament, through the offspring that was born through ethnic Jews. And he says, listen, there is a day coming and is now here well, it is not where it will not be the crux where you worship, but who you worship. And how does he unpack that? Well, he starts throwing back and forth truth and spirit, doesn't he? Isn't it interesting that in these six verses, eight times the word worship occurs? So I think if we're going to go to a passage of scripture that talks about what Christian worship is, this would be an important place to start, which is why I chose it. So he starts to go back and forth with spirit and truth, truth and spirit. And what is he saying? Well, he says truth, which let me give you a definition up on the screen. And that is truth is what God says about himself and his creation. You might be able to come up with a better definition than that, but that's the best I could come up with. If we want to know what truth is, Pilate said, what is truth? People today are arguing, what is truth? Well, truth, by definition, is what God says about himself and creation. And so he starts there, and he says that worship is about truth, and he's giving truth in this passage. He's giving the timeline of salvation. He's saying that, that, that there will be a day, and it is now here. The king is here. He talks about the father, and that we, you can have relationship with the father by experiencing the living water that he talked about earlier, and that that living water can actually move you, a woman who has had five husbands, and now is living with a man who is not legally your husband. It can actually wash and cleanse you, and at this point our spirits should be experiencing something you see how this is worship the truth of all of this is intended to impact our spirit which what is spirit spirit is our mind will and emotions even right now i'm I'm getting chills just thinking about that i've been saved since 1987 by god's grace and for his glory so there are a few decades under the under the hood But it is more precious to me in this moment of preaching it than it was the day that I was saved because of all of the truth that I continue to learn about God, all of the truth that I continue to learn about myself by the way I'm exposed as a husband, by the way I'm exposed as a leader, by the way I'm exposed as a father, and I continue to see that truth and then be reminded of the gospel, and my spirit is evoked, That's what true worship is. That's what the Father is looking for. And so when it comes to my relationship with my wife, the best solution and the gospel-centered response is not to do more. The gospel response is not just try to do better. The gospel response is to start looking at the truth of who this woman is the god of the universe designed her to be the best fit for my life what a gift and when i can't see that i need to recalibrate with his lenses and it's not just about physical attraction although she is gorgeous it is not just about personality but she can make me laugh like hardly anybody else it's not about skills it's not about talents It's about the fact that God has crafted her to be the perfect fit for me. And when I start thinking about that truth, then what should happen is my response to her, even if I'm frustrated with her, which is rare, should be tenderness, should be value. And that should come across in the way that I interact with her. Beloved, this illustration falls short because it's not perfect, but it is attempting to show us what the crux of truth. Christian worship is. The more we own the truth, the biblical truth about God, about myself, about the change that is wrought through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should impact our spirit. Beloved, if it doesn't, you might need to check your spiritual pulse. We're all works in process, we all have different personalities that we bring to the table. Beloved, this is the crux, this is the epicenter of true Christian worship. We will see the truth and we'll be evoked in our spirit.